0: Hello and welcome to episode six of Of Poetry Podcast with C.T. Salazar. C.T. Salazar is a Latinx poet and librarian from Mississippi. His debut collection, Headless John the Baptist Hitchhiking, is forthcoming in 2022 from Acre Books. He's the author of three chapbooks, most recently American Cave Wall Sonnets from Bull City Press, and he's the 2020 recipient of the Mississippi Institute of Arts and Letters Award in Poetry. His poems have appeared in The Rumpus, Beloit Poetry Journal, Cincinnati Review, 32 Poems, Rhino, and elsewhere.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for being here. Would you like to open us up with a poem?
1: Yes, let me pull it up. Uh, Okay, so this is a poem that's um, part of the full-length collection, Headless John the Baptist Hitchhiking, and this is uh, titled Forgive Yourself for Seeing It Wrong. Under the rose quartz clouds, even a man glimmers like a bride, his hatchet a bouquet. I am waiting for his tears to turn pearl, ache and its flag of unfurling twilight. The telephone wires make a strange harp over our heads, and if we weren't here, who would talk about heaven, root-ridden and a little afraid of the notion that light has a tendency to keep going, like my father on his motorcycle? Maybe I've spent too much time listening to the distant rain on rooftops of people who may kill each other and believed it's not too late for me to make this about love. The man in the field and his farm truck. Even now I hear him, his voice, such a split of lark and lemon, this crooked intimacy, how the last train mixes its smoke with the dusk, and the cattle bed down around the Chevy, taking it as one of their own. Light sinking, unable to chime, and helpless to touch. Thank you.
0: And for our listeners, this is a poem that um, largely reads like a, a stickic poem or like a monostitch poem in, in the way it has long lines with um, visual in the in the centers, towards the centers in some of them. Um, so that visual pause on the page is there. I just wanna mention that. Hmm. And that is a poem from CT's forthcoming full-length. Headless John the Baptist Hitchhiking from Acre Books, who makes beautiful books. Um, And as I read this collection, CT, um, I got to see the ways that your chapbook from Bull City Press, American Cave Wall Sonnets, kind of weaves in, in terms of the sonnet river, which I think is a really beautiful metaphor, among other things, um, for how your work kind of flows and the presence of rivers and there's so much um kind of, it reads effort as effortless interplay um and i know it's not at all but um it takes a lot of work to get there but i really appreciated seeing that relationship between your chapbook and your full length
1: yeah thanks so much but when i was writing the american cable sonnets i was really worried that i was making this very isolated animal and then uh once I had it as like a full published object I realized that it's not isolated at all like it's all it's all part of a larger thing that I'm working toward
0: yes no I think that 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 the sonnets work so well in your full length um would you like to talk a little bit about your engagement with sonnets because I know that you gave um, a workshop with Scupperdon books and their five ways of looking at poetry series. And unfortunately, I missed that evening, so I would love love to hear what you talked about in terms of sonnets
1: with folks. Yeah, so like um, it took me a long time to realize the why I gravitate towards sonnets in certain like points of my life because I go long distances without thinking through them or writing toward them. And then I have moments where that's all I'm writing. And I've recently kind of realized that the sonnet is very much my like panic space, that I retreat much like a closet into smaller spaces when I have anxiety or worry or fear. And that really came out in the American Cave Summits because I was um, kind of at a peak with like just a fear of how masculinity was ruining everything. And that's, that was my like first real retreat into sonnets and trying to, kind of explore like this strange apocalypse that I was that I felt was very public but at the same time very intimate to me. Like it was I wrote the first ones in like 2017, I think. And I I don't know, I was I was at a point in my life where I was just thinking like this is this thing that we all have and participate in is going to be the death of all of us. And I was just very stuck in that mode of thinking for like like two years. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that was like the the, the writing of the American cable sonnets was primarily that feeling.
0: Wow, that's incredible and I couldn't have guessed that if um if you'd had me guess like what is CT ride sonnet <laughs> I don't know if it like... <laughs> they love they love sonnets um but that put really puts you in relationship with um Terence Hayes American sonnets for my past and future assassin it really puts you into relationship with Wanda Coleman's sonnets I mean and I think the fact that you have American in the title um you know my background's in um English lit British so um sonnets for me have such a it's hard for me to break out of the like sonnets or love poems. <laughs> like I, I like exist in that space. Like you know, you know, you're rest. You're always wrestling with something, right? Like there's always an agon to sonnets. Um, but I love hearing how um, just thoroughly American your know, sonnet space is, um, and that's a really, really interesting. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Yeah, no problem. That's like I, I always think of them as like, you know, the sonnet was that primarily. Uh, english british but i mean it came it came here like i'm piggybacking on like imperial power Mm -hmm. and that's like there's nothing more american to me than that
0: true true wow um do you have a favorite (laughs) sonneteer i said no trick questions and then here i am
1: (laughs) wanda coleman is up there like
0: yeah
1: i a few years ago, like I tried to interlibrary loan all of Wanda Coleman's collections that had the full sequence because I'd never read all 100. And what an experience, like wow, truly a master. And, yeah. and nothing frustrates me more than the fact that all of these sonnet um, anthologies exist and she's not in any of them. There's even, there's even an anthology called American Sonnets that does not feature her. I was oh just my like, are you kidding? No. <laughs> But, yeah, she's probably, like, the top three.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, Gwendolyn Brooks, of course, has some just killer sonnets.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Dandy Blake is a good one, too. It's fantastic.
0: Yeah. Is Wanda Coleman's work easy to get aside from the... Li- I mean, I know you're a librarian, so you are just excellent at libraries. Um, So, are or her book, I mean, I know Black Sparrow Press um, is now publishing some of hers, but can you get the books aside from libraries or no?
1: Uh, If you get really lucky and you're in a used bookstore, mm-hmm. that's, you can encounter her work um, in multiple, like, you can see multiple copies of her books, but wow, um, she's so out of print besides the edition that Terrence Hayes recently put out, mm-hmm. and I'm thankful for that because that put, like, 30 to 40 of the American sonnets back in print in circulation, but Otherwise, I really had to interlibrary alone because I yeah. couldn't sequence.
0: It's really interesting because we have several used bookstores in town, but they're all relatively young. So they mm-hmm. don't have the same kind of used bookstore, you know,
1: right. sometimes
0: the resources that older ones have. Mm, that's interesting to think about. <laughs> um, one of the things I have. Well, this could, this question could go two ways, and I'm happy if whatever you want to do with it or run with it. Um, but of course, I spent a, a lot of time thinking about place um, and the South. And um, I believe you're really the first kind of Southern poet and writer to be on of poetry. So this is really exciting um, to talk with you about Souths. Um, but in an, another interview, you mentioned that you have a Southern Baptist mother and a Latino Catholic father and that you live in Mississippi. And I, I just read that and I was like, damn, uh, that is a whole, I mean, that's just, it's such, you know, that's such a rich and kind of weighty and complicated family heritage. And that's like, it's, that's the whole poetics right there. Um, and I was interested in asking you when you first when it became important to you, that family heritage in your work, because I know for me, it took me a really long time to kind of figure it out. Like the whole, I think Rachel Zeckers mentioned, like, like realizing in their thirties, like, oh, I'm white. Or, you know, like some heritage things, we just live and breathe and we don't, we don't see ourselves. And I think it's easier if you're a white person's just, you don't see yourself as other, right? Um, yeah.
1: Um. It's a really great question. It took. I was probably like, neck deep in my MFA by the time I was actually comfortable like being Southern, and it really took the the work of CD Wright to get me there, because I saw yeah, <laughs> I saw Southernness as a uh, primarily um, typical white cis-bodied embodiment. And I thought that I was kind of like shadow cast away from that as a Southerner, and then uh, reading C.D. Wright, especially *Shall Cross* that book. Um, and I got to give a shout out to my director of my MFA, Kendall Donkelberg, because he put that book in my hands, mm-hmm. and it, it really changed how I see my my own poetics and my identity within it. But yeah, her and um, I'm a big Tennessee Williams reader, so I've read. Uh, almost all of his plays and his poetry and he he actually grew up in my hometown so like he was or he he was born in my hometown in Columbus and um like reading his essays he describes a lot of the same buildings that I grew up around and then reading his contentions with gender and identity and his like just distaste of the stereotypical southern experience really made a path for me to like thrive under the identity of a southerner
0: Wow. Yeah, that is, I, I have, I've never heard anyone say that they were hugely influenced by Tennessee Williams. So I definitely want to talk more about this. Uh, I love those peculiar um, influences that are really essential and particular and um, are the writers that give you, you know, permission or inroads or whatever you want to call it. Um, CD Wright is also a huge one for me Um, And I know you're also a Frank Stanford fan.
1: Very recently, yeah. So in the last uh, year, so when I really started reading Frank Stanford and I still have a lot to read from him, like I'm not an expert on him in any means, but I have had his full link checked out from my library for like a few months now. And I'm just gonna keep checking it out until I finish it. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I love his work so far.
0: I think I saw an image on your website of... um the collected spring Stanford. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, wow, yes, absolutely for CT's work. Um, Just kind of a fierce Southern lyric um, and doing some really interesting things. Um, Since we're on the kind of topic of, well, like I do wanna ask you about your MFA now. What, how did your peers take your you because that was something I kind of hid back then. <laughs> so, so being southern, I you know, um, I was was treated better if I didn't act southern. Um, when my father be- went in the military, he purposefully um, masked his southern accent. So mm. he speaks with a kind of a mid-Atlantic sound, except when he gets on the phone with like a family member, and then suddenly it's like full Louisiana. Uh, mm. but he said he told me, and I I wouldn't quite use this language myself, but he said um, the Southern accent was synonymous with stupid. So, um, and I've written like an essay about this um, and kind of like the ghost of our language and the things that kind of haunt our speech. And so I'm curious, did you have any kind of, what was your experience being like a a Southern writer in the MFA program? Very
1: lucky. Um, My MFA was headed up by, some really awesome poets, like one of my big, um, someone who was on my committee for my thesis even was the poet L. Lamar Wilson from Alabama, uh-huh. uh, just phenomenal poet, I mean like unrealistically gifted and he really encouraged me to pursue both this identity of like the southern, the genderqueer,
0: uh-huh.
1: and I don't without like professors like that, I don't think that I, I, I know I wouldn't have had a good experience. And I've, I've read so many horror stories from other people like me that went to an MFA and were just smothered. So I'm, I'm very privileged and thankful.
0: Good, that's always so good to hear. Yeah, finding people, generous faculty to work with. Um, I mean, that's what I love about working with students is um, just how important, I mean, I think, you know, f- how important family is, how important where you are from is. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of international students when I teach in the summer. So sometimes I'll say like, where are you from? And they get this kind of haunted look with their face. And I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, like, are you from North Carolina? Like, I'm not trying to like trace, like, are you from Korea? I'm like, no. Uh, but like where you are, you inflections of your speech everything it really does change for sure i wanted to ask you about you know i brought this up a minute ago before we started recording but um how does being non-binary affect your poetry and your poetics Um, and it's you just raised um, it with your thesis work
1: yeah um it's the forefront of my revision process i think it comes from the way i experience gender even i'm very against reductivism and i think that a lot of our or at least the western ideas of gender are like reductivist at heart and when i when i'm like usually when i'm drafting i'm not as careful about it and it's really in the revision process where i zone in and like I am so against any line of poetry that says the world is one thing and one thing only, or someone else is one thing and one thing only. And I will edit that furiously. And it's not even that I'm offended by it, but I'm hurt by it. Hmm. Like I, I target it in my own writing where I say, where I like just limit something to only one ability hmm. and edit that out. And I think that comes from how I experience the world and how my like ideas of gender are perceived by others. And there's a a very short, because we were talking about Tennessee Williams, there's a very short poem of his that's a lullaby. And for years, that poem both stuck with me and bothered me. And it took me a really long time to figure out that he was ramming against how binaried our ideas of gender are. And that was like one of the first poems I memorized too.
0: Mm. (laughs) <laughs> you just told me you memorized a poem. <laughs> would you like to recite it?
1: I would love to recite it.
0: Oh, I'm so excited.
1: All right. So the the title of it is just the first line. So winter smoke is blue and bitter. Winter smoke is blue and bitter. Women comfort you in winter. Scent of time is cool and tender. Girls are music to remember men are made of rock and thunder threat of storm to labor under cypress woods are demon dark boys are fox teeth in your heart and it's just this little coupled out poem that is it seems so simple but it's not there's so much happening in it and it's it's haunting
0: wow yeah (laughs) boys are fox teeth in your heart Wow. Okay. This you're you're definitely um, transforming my stereotype of Tennessee Williams that I have in my head. <laughs> wow. Mm, yeah, and that's so. I mean, I think with some of the really powerful things you do with lyric and image um, in your work, I mean, you have a very striking lyric, like, and I I think it does. Your poetry really walks um, like a lyric narrative, and I'm saying that like lyric narrative hyphenated, not binarily. Or thinking about them, um, you know, when you were saying like, "I never want a line that you know says the world is one thing." Like, um, and I was thinking right then, like, "Oh yeah, like why would you do that unless you you were trying to poke? It's like poking a bear with a stick, like you you know." <laughs> You, you write a line like that if you're going to contradict it or you're going to trouble it or um, it's I mean it's something I think you have to grow out of too because you really long for certainty when you're younger you just want things or I did like wanted things to be cut and dried and you know poetry was a place where you could like make declarations maybe or, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it's not and it doesn't work that way
1: yeah and it's I've really been thinking about lately too just like how to appropriately write toward like a beloved because there's so many love poems that I read now and I'm like that's really limiting of that person how they're just broken down to parts and it's not it's not romantic to me at all like it's not it it completely makes me miss the point of the the poem when um, someone is just an appropriated object desire and they don't they don't have the room to be something that they actually are which is like multiple and just insane and taking up space like the points that limit like that are really troubling to me
0: it's so good to hear you say this um our listener can't see it but i've just been nodding and nodding and nodding um because yes i i feel very much the same way um And I mean, even before I really knew I was non-binary, I was leaving certain grammars out of my work and I didn't understand why, or someone was like, well, why is this a they? Like, why is the patient a they? Why isn't it a she? Just make it a she, it's simpler. And I was like, no, it's really important (laughs) to me. And I didn't even understand why at the time. Um, Or you're bringing up love poems, which um, lately... Some of my friends write really incredible sex poems. Um, Jennifer Funk writes incredible sex poems. Um
1: Jennifer Funk, she's amazing.
0: Oh, I love, she has a chapbook that is really, I can't <laughs> wait for it to be in the world. Um, it's just incredible. Um, Benjamin Garcia, I think writes very sexy poems. Um, and whenever I write a love poem, I end up uh, writing about our house. There's always a house. <laughs> <laughs> like what's going on anna um but it's so funny like um i don't know like you have to go to metaphor at some point like it has to be something else um and i think it's something really beautiful about poetry and you know my love is red red rose um okay i but that's actually most of the time i usually quote that wrong either i change it from a simile to a metaphor i think it's what i usually do Anyways. Um, it is, it is important and it is, does bring up similes and metaphors and, um, all those different ways of talking and naming the world, um, which listening to David Naaman's podcast with Callum Angus recently, and it was just incredible for thinking about queer poetics and queer literature as being as interested as like science and nature writing in categories and naming because it's doing so much work of renaming and recategorization and that was making my mind blow um and i just thought that was really incredible
1: um put that on my list because i haven't i haven't listened to that one yet
0: oh it's really good yeah i think um often this, this is gonna sound terrible but often nature writing doesn't make me sit up. Like that. And the fact that Callum Angus is writing fiction, and it just, I was like, wow, I, I ordered that book immediately. As soon as I got done with the podcast. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, that's such a generous space in your work. Um, it's so very clearly, you know, to me as a reader, a non binary poetic, something that opens it up. Um, and that's really, and you know, you're also doing work with masculinity and questioning and those those kind of frameworks. Um, and it's interesting to me that lyric is part of how you do that. That lyric's like really essential, um, which is really exciting. I think.
1: Thanks. It's. Um, I don't know, like another way to uh investigate but like just through language like Hmm. i don't think that there's um and a lot of like abolitionists have talked about this that the the first way to reach our better world is is to give it language but and i've been i've been trying to just do my best to not be locked in and i think like the the lyric is the best way of getting rid of boundary
0: yeah Something about, I mean, I think of the lyric itself, the sonnet itself, as being essentially queer as well, um, with Shakespeare and, and the, you know, the transformation of speaker in their own argument and how that happens. Um, yeah, I need to think more about this, but it's a good thing to think about. Would you like to read a, a poem for us now
1: sure yeah um, i'll actually go with one of the cave wall sonnets since we were just talking about them um, okay american cable sonnet the fires my father started O oh lord once he found a sleeping bear and named him ramesses am the bull he cries in at night when the body is too simple to break into meaningful music or have, like fruit after a sharp knife, his jaw where I look for the mountains gone, under his tongue the names of sleeping stars wake. For God so loved the world, he sobbed angels and circus animals as it starved, and he named these misplaced creatures fathers. My father was always talking in his sleep. Baby boy, the hurt I've brought others will visit you soon as a beggar limping. Thank you. I'm interested that
0: the bear comes up in Headless John the Baptist hitchhiking as well in reference to the father.
1: Oh yeah, I didn't even... Connect that. You're right. <laughs> it's
0: really cool. It's
1: been a really cool image. Hmm. I need to be a better reader to my own work, I think, <laughs> and work on making those connections.
0: I mean, it's interesting because it can be really hard to see those things when you're in it and you're writing. Um, And I think that's why I love, I think, that's why I like Twitter, that's why I like the Sealy Challenge, that's why I like podcasts um, so much. Podcasts have just been wonderful during the pandemic um, to kind of live in conversation with others. So I just think we read better in conversation with others. It's not that reading doesn't have a lot of isolated work and writing isn't a lot of isolated work, but at some point you just, you have to have another
1: Yeah and I like that. I like seeing reading as a communal process especially like as a library like I I love like rural libraries to me are such beautiful spaces because it's like here's our books on the shelf so here's what other people that live here are reading Uh and like that's just such a special like stranger intimate moment to like pick up a book and know that someone else who lives in this area has checked this out and read it and now I'm reading it and now we have the same like we have the same things that we've read together, even if we never meet each other.
0: Yes. I love hearing you say that too, because I grew up with really rural libraries. Um, and in fact, when I was talking with the poet, Jessica Cuella this summer, um, and we were talking about whether or not, <laughs> she's a Scorpio and I'm a Taurus. So sometimes we get into these wonderful conversations about like, well, can you judge somebody for that? Um, and so <laughs> So our conversation was like, can you judge someone who says like, I was never taught this kind of poetry, like in my MFA or in undergrad or even in high school, whatever. Um, And I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, no, not that you could just, but I was like, yeah, that's a real thing, you know, um, not being taught that something like that. And I'm thinking of very small library experiences and being homeschooled and And she grew up with the New York public library. And she was like, no, you just go to the library and you do the work yourself and everything's available to you. And I was like, Whoa, everything's not available to you. (laughs) Um, But it's so interesting. Like we don't always think about that. Like when we're thinking about navigating our different privileges, but like, what, what were your resources like, like, did your parents have books at home? Like I've heard people say that on podcasts, like, Oh, my parents didn't have books. And that blows my mind but that is absolutely someone's reality so it is interesting to think about those resources
1: for sure and I'm like just speaking of like what you were and weren't taught like for the past eight months to a year I've been trying to fill in because I realized like I have a huge gap in my reading especially in poetry like um, for the longest time I thought I just hated the modernist movement and then I realized that what I was taught was just the very specifically white modernist movement. And I have been reading uh, lately a lot of like Black modernists that are coming back into print. And modernism is amazing. (laughs) Like N.H. Pritchard, Russell Atkins, even just rereading like Amiri Baraka. I knew a little bit of his writing, but now I'm trying to like work through his collected. And it, and like just, I'm astonished that I am a few years separated from MFA, that I, you know, like have this degree that says I am a master of fine arts and poetry. And then there was an entire like sphere of writers that I just had no idea existed. And now I have the like, just, it's been joyful to like read. And I have a few mentors that have been like helping me fill up this reading list. Like Randall Horton, who was one of my MFA professors. He's given me just a ton to read. And I I could never like even see modernism as the same thing now because it's like the, the black modernists who've now been excluded are Better. They're just better. They're better writers.
0: Yes. No. I I really appreciate you saying that. Um. I had a very like. Oh, when my experience of poetry in college was so much older, like eighteenth century. You know, yeah. I just read so much of the um, early modernists and um, Victorianists that when I took a modern a po- class on mod- modern poetry and read The modernists. I was actually blown away because I was like, they speak in my language, which <laughs> they didn't, but it's it was so much closer to my language that I, you know, my mind was, you know, I was just like lit up. Um, I think I spent every single class, I was listening, but I was like writing poems all during like those <laughs> classes, just all the time. I was just like furiously writing poems through all my college classes. Um, but it was, yeah, it, I think Black modernism is amazing should definitely be the title of a <laughs> anthology <laughs> you know we're doing some really cool um you know i think of the new kevin young anthology like we're doing some really cool new anthologies and the black nature anthology which is incredible
1: um yes, camille dungie edited that right yes They're yes also an amazing writer.
0: oh i know her work whoo so good so good um I was actually kind of inspired to go read more William Carlos Williams because she has a poem after William Carlos Williams. Um, and I was like, Yeah, he is pretty cool. And then I went and read all of Patterson this summer, and I was like, Oh, I like you a little less. <laughs> <laughs> I should have just stuck with Spring and All. With yeah. that, there's that Spring and All edition that has um CD Wright's introduction, which is really good. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so and I'm I'm someone who loves idiom and -hmm. loves vernacular Um, so I thought I thought Williams might be more important as I figured to me but in the end it felt like the madmen of poets or something
1: yeah
0: and there's a lot of gender I mean the gender stuff in that book is pretty chauvinist so it's it's trouble (laughs) (laughs) Williams has got kind of trouble, I think. Hmm. Well, you are—you um, are currently, you just accepted a position, tenure track position as a university librarian. Yeah. So you are you are set up to work with words for the foreseeable future, and you have three chapbooks out and a poetry full collection forthcoming. What else are you working
1: on right now? I am trying to get back in the mindset of uh, finishing some plays that I had started writing a while back. Wow. Um, yeah, I like writing plays. I don't I don't get to explore that a lot. Um, but now that I have more time, now that I'm not a student for like the first time in 29 years, I'm trying to make more time for playwriting. And I'm like, midway through another sonnet cycle that is more specifically focused on Mississippi. And I don't know what that will be, what it'll look like when it's finished. I, I was actually on the fence as to whether or not I would publish those. And then when I made the decision to start sending them out, I thought, okay, well, this, this is probably, I need to start thinking about how it looks as a manuscript, but that's that's way later down the road because I, I think I'm just gonna celebrate the full length collection for a long time.
0: Yes. Definitely do that.
1: <laughs> and just be a good reader because that's um mm. I think that I I think I maybe get more out of reading than I get out of writing. So I'm going to just keep my nose down and keep reading for a long time.
0: That is by far just the best thing anyone can do for their work, I think. So read read like Books are going out of print tomorrow. I mean, um, it's definitely been huge, huge for me. Um, the more, the more diversely you read, the more often you read. Every time I see people talking about TV shows on Twitter, I'm I'm always like, this is why I read more. <laughs> because <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not watching all these things. I'm like the White Lotus. I'm like, okay, yeah, I've seen, I saw, a, you know, Pass by me on but that's that's also a total lie because my partner and i have been binge watching true blood so i mean (laughs) so we do we have our we have our fun tv too um we call it we we tell the kids we're like we're gonna go watch southern vampires now (laughs) but go to bed bed. (laughs) um yeah well um, I don't know, vampirism, vampirism is pretty pretty apt for the South in many ways, for the white South. Oh, for
1: sure. <laughs> <laughs> I about that, but you're absolutely right.
0: <laughs> if you can, if you can put up with the accents, which are so bad, so bad. Um, but e- when you think about it, it's like they're mostly Canadian actors or European like doing these southern accents that are just so bad. Um, but it's okay. It gives us something to uh used against each other in the evenings. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible accents. Um, yeah, I think thinking about the different kinds of Souths is also it's important in your work. Um, you know, it just opens up. I think how we can how we can think about the South. You know, again, it's that language. I love that you bring up the abolitionists and um that when you talk about naming things and figuring out the right language it can actually affect our imaginations for how we're able to think about community and how we're able to think about ourselves and um yeah it's it's still it's still troubling to me how often i see people lambast the south as though it was one thing
1: yeah and i'm i'm trying to be better about working on my own um perspective, I think I should say. Um, Because I have a lot of contentions with the South and then I, lately I've been running into this like, you're not the only person who lives here. You're by far not the only person having a singular experience here. So I've I've been trying to like reconcile the fact that there's so many different kinds of people that live here and that are affected by so many different things operating here. Mm -hmm. And even though we're all living in the same place, there's so many different Southern experiences and it's um, I've really been trying to dive into work that is more open to exploring that the South isn't just this unanimous bad guy, but you know, that there's so many people working here that are, you know, they need to be celebrated and they need to be pulled up. And I don't know, it's, it's so easy just to say that Mississippi is awful, but I think that like, I love it so much Hmm. just because i I know the people that are i mean dedicating their lives that are the people that have lost their lives trying to Mm -hmm. make it better and i think that that is the most outrageous form of love
0: Hmm. yes yes that's where i fell in love in mississippi oh Biloxi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah i've written a little about it but it was hurricane we were doing cleanup from hurricane katrina and it was like six months after katrina and just seeing the state of people's homes six months after was Mm. pretty eye-opening um yeah just every there was still so much that needed to be demolished like before it could even be rebuilt and
1: And it's like people give it this idea or like this identity that it's a state that just wants the worst for people. And it's like, no, it's a state full of black and brown people who have been gerrymandered out of all representation. Like it's not, Mississippi is not a place just full of villains.
0: No, no, I know Uh, the, the violent and legalized oppression, you know, that keeps people from voting. It keeps them from Engage, civil engagement, and all kinds. I mean, it's just also the more historical reading I do. Um, I don't know if you've read the Slaves War. I'm reading that right now. Um, I haven't read that, but
1: I've been. I need to put it on like my list because I've I've seen it's come up in a lot of conversations with People, like, oh, you should read this. Yeah,
0: it's really you know just actual testimonies from enslaved people mm-hmm. in the South. Um, that's huge but also just realizing that like where I stayed at a writing residency this summer, it's called the Weymouth, Weymouth Center. And it was um, the estate of um, James Boyd, who was a North Carolina novelist.
1: Um,
0: And he and his family bought the home after the war. Um, You know, it was later, early 20th century, but um, the town is a sundown town southern vines is a sundown town and it is so weird like it's um the fact that it was owned by um northerners it was founded by northerners who set up a sanitarium um and then they said like there was an article in the paper where this doctor was talking about it and he's like hey we really solved the race problems we don't have a race problem we just told black people they couldn't work or live in the town and then we told him, we put them in this town next door and it's called Jimtown. And CT, I was like reading this as I was staying there and I was just horrified. But then at the same time, that's so many towns all over America. And also it just, it shows you just, um, there isn't this division between North and the South, like the economies, the, the intimate economies, the actual economy, like are just enmeshed and entangled
1: and they still are i mean they still are i I think it was jericho brown who said a long time ago that if, if one person is still affected by an action then it cannot be history
0: exactly
1: and that's i mean he's absolutely right that's our economies are still built to exploit and so much of our structure is still exploiting so it's I mean, we have more to work through than ever. That's like, there's so, there's just, I don't know, we could talk about it for like three more hours. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, there's just so much. And that's why I think po- poetry that troubles understandings of the South, poetry that confronts things about the South. Um, I mean, I love that you're doing it in a really high lyric way. Like I've read some of your Mississippi sonnets, um, I believe, and we've published them at Moist Poetry Journal, um, and they're pretty incredible.
1: Thanks.
0: So I'm very excited to hear that's a potential project for you. Would you like to read um, a final poem for us? Oh, sure,
1: yeah, yeah, okay, Um, find one, okay. Uh, so this is from the full-length collection. It's easy to become king of a place no one wants to live in. But it's really hard to stay alive after that. There is what is real, and there is what will be real. And this logic beheads me over and over. I named the scarecrow Ozymandus. I think my insides as strange aquariums for little blue fish when I'm falling asleep. I said, I'm sick of you but I meant to say I'm seasick of you. Rain is usually the first sign a curse has ended, but it means so little to my family's drought dry bones. Still the sky says non-believer, hinge open your jaw for me, the star-filled star field. Here I believe no country like the country where you and I, for the mercy of the barn bending into the meadow, bend back and demand a life this dirt could never really give us. That's okay. This was a language I was never meant to speak, but here I am speaking it like a paper tiger unfolding in a field. I am waiting to be unrecognizable. How could I love you in one single shape? Any crease made by your hands makes me a treasure map. I'm a temple bell when you ring me. The moth with the orange eyes of God blinking on its wings sees us and sees us soldiers not knowing what to do with ourselves or especially our hands on a night so absent of fire. So faith in something like resting my head on your shoulder comes easy as the atmosphere spending its sweet time on us, even with so many stars bumping their foreheads against the glass, even with your hands holding my head together, and you singing about surrender and the men who won't.
0: Thank you so much CT. That was beautiful.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you for being here.
1: That was a pleasure. Thanks.
0: To read more of CT Salazar's work, check out the episode show notes. You will also find a link to purchase American Cave Wall Sonnets from Bull City Press. Once again, thank you for listening.